Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you. Welcome to Forest Park. If you're new here, uh, we want to invite you to, to fill out a Connect card um, in the seat in front of you. And then after you're done, you can just simply uh, place them in the drop boxes on your way out. Um, one announcement that I do have, if you've been coming here for a while and maybe you're interested in pursuing membership or maybe want to find out uh, more information about our church, um, our next membership class is going to be October the 24th on Sunday after the 1030 service lunch and childcare will be provided. Um, and sign up is over at the info center and you can sign up after, uh, after this, this, uh, the message, but the service. Uh, but you signing up doesn't commit you to anything. It's just simply you're saying, hey, I'm interested in finding out more information about this church and what the vision, the mission is, what that looks like. Um, and, and then also that's your opportunity to find out what we're all about. And that will be the 24th. And we need you to sign up because we need to know how much food to buy and also if we we need to provide for childcare, So that's going to be October uh, the 24th. But if you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to John chapter 3 as we're continuing our series through the gospel of John. And what John is really trying to do in his gospel, uh, he's not necessarily uh, asking the question, who is Jesus? But rather in his gospel, he's trying to show us who is the Christ, who is the Messiah, who is the Son of God. And he shows us that his name is Jesus and his invitation for all of us and the reason why he's showing that it is Jesus is so that we can believe and have life in his name and so my hope for us in our series and my invitation for you Sunday in and Sunday out is to look to Christ to believe in him so that you may have life. And so as we got into uh, the Gospel of John, we've entered into the section of Jesus entering into his public ministry. And John shows us how Jesus is revealing his glory and by he, how he's taking the old and making it new. And so in the very first sign that Jesus performed, we saw the old purification system being put to the side and we see the new wine of the kingdom of God. Last week we saw Jesus cleansing the table, the temple, and by cleansing the temple, he's showing us that he is a new and better priest. He is a new and better temple where God is manifested and sinners meet with the holy God and he is a new and better sacrifice, a sacrifice that has been sacrificed once and for all that covers all of our sin and even today in John chapter 3 he continues this theme of the old is gone and the new has come and so in Jesus's interaction uh, with Nicodemus a religious man Jesus doesn't beat around the bush he cuts straight to the heart of the matter and he talks about being born again this new birth and what that looks like so let's look at John chapter 3 verse 1 and see uh, Nicodemus and Jesus and what they talk about Verse 1 says this, There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. So we'll just stop here as we're introduced to Nicodemus. And so who's Nicodemus? Well, well, John tells us Nicodemus is a man of the Pharisees. And so if you're not familiar with Scripture or familiar with what a Pharisee is, that means like Nicodemus was a religious man. He was a morally upright man. He was a respected man in the community. He was a disciplined man, a man with integrity, and a man that was knowledgeable about Scripture. So for, for example, Nicodemus, by the time he reached the age of 12, he's already memorized the first five books of the Bible. 
That's the part you don't read because it's so boring and there's so many details. He's memorized it and nailed it and could recite it. He devoted his entire life of studying the scriptures and studying the law and making sure that every single aspect, every detail of the law is observed to the best of his ability. He's a man of high standing. He's a man that everybody looks up to and wish they could be. And Nicodemus approaches Jesus at nighttime. And the question is, okay, why does he approach Jesus at nighttime? Well, well, some like to say the reason why Nicodemus approached Jesus at nighttime is because that's when rabbis would get together and study the scripture and and, and debate the long hours of the night as they're unpacking the scripture and unpacking the law. So this is where they would normally do it. Other people would like to say, no, the reason why Nicodemus approached Jesus at nighttime is because Nicodemus was afraid because he did not want to be publicly identified with Jesus. So in nighttime, he, out of fear, he approaches Jesus. However, I think there's another explanation. And here's why I think the Gospel of John is such a difficult book. Because what John does is he uses words that could have double meanings. And you're asking yourself, what, which one does he mean? Does he mean this one or does he mean that one? And sometimes he means both. And so the word night kind of has double meaning. And we even see it throughout the Gospel of John. Uh, so for example, in John chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus says this, We must do the work of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. So there, nighttime means nighttime, but it's almost kind of metaphorically speaking, while he's here, we've got to do the work. But then in John 11, verse 10, he says, But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. So now he uses night metaphorically of somebody who is walking in darkness. And so the word night can either be, uh, can be, either be literal nighttime hours or it can be used metaphorically for moral and spiritual darkness. So which one is it? I I think it's safe for us to say it's, in a sense, both. Which means that as Nicodemus approaches Jesus at nighttime, Nicodemus was also walking in spiritual darkness. Nicodemus was lost. Nicodemus was baffled in his approach to Jesus, and he really did not know how to approach Jesus. He thinks he's seeing something about Jesus that might make him special. But Jesus is going to remind him, my my friend Nicodemus, you do not see a dear thing. And in verse 2, look look at verse 2. He says this, Nicodemus approaching Jesus, confronting Jesus. He says, this man came to him at nighttime and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. So obviously Nicodemus witnessed the miraculous signs that Jesus performed. And, and John chapter 2 verse 23 tells us of all the signs that Jesus performed. And many believed in Jesus, but because Jesus knew what was in man, he knew the heart of man, he did not entrust himself to these men. Nicodemus was part of them. They saw all the miraculous signs that Jesus has performed. And he's in a sense saying, that means if you're performing this signs, you might be coming from God. But he doesn't confess Jesus as God. He doesn't confess Jesus as the coming one, the Messiah or the Christ. 
And even notice how he speaks in the first person plural. He says this, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. He's not saying, I know, but we know. So in a sense, Nicodemus is not speaking for himself, but maybe he's speaking for, for, for his other buddies, his Pharisees or, or the ruling council that kind of gathered together and said, did you see all that Jesus performed? Maybe he could come from God. And so in a sense, Nicodemus is kind of hiding behind his colleagues and yet also representing his colleagues saying, hey, I think we're seeing something here and we're not certainly sure what we're seeing, but we're certainly seeing something because you can't perform these signs unless you're from God, but we don't really know what to say or how to classify you. In other words, he's approaching Jesus of wanting to gather information so they could finally assess who Jesus is. And notice, look at how Jesus responds to him, verse 3. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, part of the, the hard part of reading the book of John is it doesn't feel like it's flowing. Because doesn't it feel like verse 3, like Jesus' response to Nicodemus is kind of out of left field? Like, technically, Nicodemus did not ask Jesus a formal question. He just simply stated, you're a teacher, you're performing signs, we think you could possibly be from God. No question asked. Just simply observation, and Jesus just makes a statement out of left field as if Nicodemus asked a question. And in a sense, by Nicodemus' statement of what they're observing, in a sense, he is asking a question informally. He's implying, like, in a sense, asking, like, like, who are you, Jesus? We know that you are a teacher, but did you come from God? Are you a prophet? Are you maybe the Messiah? And yet Jesus responds to a merely implied question. Because here's what's going on. Nicodemus is trying to gather information so they can assess who Jesus is. And by Jesus in his statement, he's basically saying, Nicodemus, you don't know anything. You think you're seeing something, but you're not seeing anything because you are in darkness. And he says in verse 3, he says, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I think there are two terms that we need to unpack. The first term is the the kingdom of God. The second one is born again. Because the kingdom of God, pretend we've never read the gospel of John. We've never read any of the scripture. That This manuscript appears to us. We read this term kingdom of God and we're kind of scratching our heads and we're like, okay, what does kingdom of God mean? John hasn't talked about it. Now Jesus tells Nicodemus, hey, buddy, you don't see anything. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So what is kingdom of God? The full expression kingdom of God doesn't appear in the Old Testament. However, there are several passages that kind of alludes to the Lord's kingdom. In a sense that the Lord sovereignly rules over all. He is king over all. So the Old Testament, in a sense, alludes that because the Lord is sovereign over all, because he's the creator of heaven and earth, he rules and reigns over all, everyone is part of his kingdom, whether you want to be in his kingdom or not. But then the prophets kind of 
talked about this kingdom idea of God that is coming at the end of history and the king will be the son of David and somehow he will be the servant of the Lord and yet he will be the Lord himself. But that's going to happen at the end of history when the world as we know it kind of ends and the new heaven and the new earth comes. And so the prophets talked about this king that is coming, that is going to bring the kingdom, and he's going to be somewhat the Lord's servant, but yet he's going to be the Lord himself. And where else in the Gospel of John do we read about someone who is God, and yet he was with God? John chapter 1, verse 1. Remember how we said John 1 is like the prologue, it's like the foyer. You walk in, and even though it touches themes, and you're like, when the world is going on, it's introducing and unpacking the themes later on in the book of John. Well, it's one of those. John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is identified as God, and yet he's God's own peer. And so the prophets talked about this one that is the Lord's servant, but yet he is the Lord. He will bring the kingdom at the end of the age. And Nicodemus, an expert of the law, a student of the Word, understood the kingdom of God understood that the kingdom of God is going to be some futuristic thing that the king is going to come. He is going to be the Lord's servant, but yet he's going to be the Lord himself, and he's going to be the son of David, and they didn't put two and two together. They just couldn't figure it out, but they knew that when he comes, they all will know. And Nicodemus also believed that because he is Jewish, because he is the people of God, because of his race and ethnicity, he will be included in the kingdom of God simply by his lineage, simply by being Jewish. But here Jesus comes and he says to him, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. And then later on, Jesus is even going to talk about the kingdom of God, not in a future sense, but also in a present sense where the kingdom of God is at hand the kingdom of God is here and we're later on going to find out that the kingdom of God is God's redemptive rule and reign that is right here present but also future it is inaugurated here on earth but it's not fully consummated And I know for some of us it's kind of confusing, so I think the best way to just forget everything I said, Nicodemus understood the kingdom of God way, way in the future. He's going to be included because of being Jewish, but what the Bible is actually teaching is that the kingdom of God is present because it's God's redemptive rule and reign over his people, so not everybody is in that kingdom, but it's also future when he comes back to fully consummate it. Everybody understand that? And Nicodemus thought, I'm in. I'm Jewish. I'm in. And Jesus is saying, "Eh, unless you're born again, you can't even see it. Not even enter it, see it. Which now begs the question, what does it mean to be born again? Let's focus on born, then we'll focus on again. The verb born rendered, the, the verb rendered to be born can refer to the action of the mother to give birth and the common ingredient is generation or regeneration so born means the action of the mother 
giving birth to a child. In a sense, a mommy and daddy comes together to have a baby. They are regenerating. This is where the idea of generations come from. We have first generation, second generation, third generation. So in a sense, they are regenerating themselves. This is the action of the father and the mother. And the source of, and so, so, so this is the idea. So if you're taking notes, here's the, the, the best way to understand in a biblical theological sense this born. It means regeneration. It is the renewal of the whole nature. Because Jesus is talking about being born again, it requires the individual to be born again, to be regenerated in order to see the kingdom of God, or in order to enter into the kingdom of God. And this is the idea, to be born, to be regenerated, as the renewal of not just a small aspect, but the whole nature. And we'll kind of unpack it a little bit more as the story continues. But then the question is, okay, born, what's the source of this regeneration? Many people, when we, especially in the evangelical circles, when we define born again, many people would define born again as someone who has made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. And there's still, uh, that commitment is still important for them today. That's what it means to be born again. However, I don't think that's what it means. Born language is a strange language. It just really is. Because a child does not decide to be born. A child doesn't do any of the work. Who does all the work? Come on, women, or ladies, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to throw you a bone here. Like, 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 who does all the work? The mama does. She does all the work. Now, does the child sometimes cooperate? Oh, yeah, they come out sometimes easy. But if it's your first child, they refuse to come out. And so you've got to endure, you've got to push, and you've got to get that child out, even though they won't want to come out. And so the source of this new birth doesn't come from the child, but rather comes from the parents, a.k.a. the mama. And so now spiritually, the source, if you're taking notes, and I'm further unpacking it, the source of regeneration is not the individual or the person, but rather is the triune God. The source of regeneration is the triune God. Now, I don't have time to unpack uh, how each person in the, in the Trinity is involved in the new birth. We don't have time, uh, but, I, but I just wanted to say triune God and not just God because all, all person in triune God plays an aspect and a role in this, this birth. But, but now for some of you are saying, well, well, Neil, you're just using an analogy and just make up stuff. Well, what does the Bible say? Okay, good. The word born, we talked about it, regeneration, the renewal of the whole nature. Now we're going to talk about again. The Greek word for again is anathen, and it has a double meaning. Again, John is difficult because he uses words with double meanings. You're like, is it this one or is it that one? Well, it's both. The double meaning for the word again means either above or again. And now you're saying, well, Neil, you're just picking and choosing which one you want it to mean. And I'm saying, no. 
Because the best way, if you don't know how to interpret what that word means, the best source to look at is what? Scripture. So the reason why I say again is a double meaning. It is again, but it is also from above because of Scripture. Let's go to the prologue again. Remember, the prologue is the foyer. If you want to understand the house, you go into the foyer. And, and John has already introduced a bunch of themes to us. So let's look at the, the prologue in John chapter 1, verse 12. It says, But all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name who were, verse 13, where's our word? Born. Not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. So John introduces to us this born. And what's the source of this birth? Is it from the man? Is it from the flesh? No, it's from, it's from God. It's from above. And so Jesus, in this one statement, truly I tell you, you must be born again you cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, he says you must be regenerated. You must be renewed. The whole nature of you must be renewed. And the source of it is from God. If that's not the case, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. Now let's stop here and, and talk about like what's the implications of this? Because when John wrote this, he wrote it to Jewish people. And they more than likely knew Nicodemus. Nicodemus must have had a reputation because he's the teacher of Israel, as we're going to find out in verse 10. He's the teacher of Israel. And what John really is showing us is that Jesus is insisting to a man like Nicodemus, the caliper and the status of Nicodemus, insist that the prerequisites in order to see the kingdom and even enter into the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. Which means, if Nicodemus, with all of his knowledge, all of his discipline, all of his conservative views, his position in the community, his integrity, and all of his work and all of his performance, if he cannot see the kingdom of God based on his status and his performance, what's your chances looking like? And in a sense, the Jewish audience would say, oh boy, we're in trouble here. And this is the point that John is making in this conversation with Jesus. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, all of your performance and all of your status does not count. You're still blind. You're still walking in spiritual darkness. You do not see a thing, and you cannot even see the kingdom of God, which means you will not be included in the kingdom of God just because you're Jewish, just because you're a good moral person. That means the same for you. You cannot be even see the kingdom of God just because you are an evangelical conservative, just because you know the Bible or you go to church or you're a good person and you pay your taxes and you obey the law. That status does not count for you. You need a regeneration, a renewal of the whole self, and it's not something you can do because who's the source of it? It is ultimately God. Nicodemus responds to Jesus in verse 4. He says this, How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? 
Now, for many of us, we read this and we're thinking, man, this guy is just thick-headed. He doesn't get it. But I think he does. Because if you go to verse 10, look at verse 10 here. Are you a teacher? This is Jesus telling Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied. Do you know what you need to do in order to become a teacher of a nation? You can't be any dummy. You got to have at least a PhD in something. Like this guy was a smart man. And for him to not understand a metaphor and to be so thick headed, he cannot be a teacher of Israel. But because he's a teacher of Israel, because he's such an expert, really what he is doing is he is responding to Jesus' metaphor with a metaphor. And in his response to Jesus' metaphor, he is saying, Jesus, you're promising too much. You can promise uh, to turn over a new leaf. You can promise a fulfillment in marriage. You can promise wealth and good things when we follow you. But what you're promising is over the top. New birth? Born again? Starting life all over? That's impossible. Why? Because time always goes forward it never goes backwards you cannot rewind things the things that we have done in the past stays in the past you can't just erase it and pretend it didn't happen I can't just crawl into my mother's womb and try to start my life all over when I'm at the end of my life what I've done will always exist and it will always remind me of the past. And what you're promising is simply too much, and I cannot accept that. And Jesus doesn't back down. He takes his statement in verse 3, and he takes that statement even further. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Notice the similarities between verses 3 and verses 5. Verse 3, we see born again and seeing the kingdom of God. Verse 5, now it almost seems like more of an elaborate expression unpacking what it means to be born again. He says born of water and the Spirit and not just seeing the kingdom of God, but now entering into the kingdom of God. So he's saying the same thing, but he's just unpacking it even more. So the question is, okay, we understand born again. Regeneration, the renewal of the whole nature, the source of it is God. It is again and above. But what does Jesus mean by born of water and the Spirit? Well, some people say that it refers to two births. The natural physical birth, that's the born of the water when the, the embryonic fluid, the water breaks, you're born out of water. The other one is the spirit, it's a spiritual birth. So one's a physical birth, the other one is a spiritual birth. Others think, no, the water refers to baptism. And so if you're a staunch Baptist and that's the only doctrine you stand on and that's the most important doctrine, you're like, no, you're baptized in water and you're baptized in the spirit. And you're like, well, which one is it? Again, when we're trying to figure out what does the text say, where do we go? We look to Scripture. Again, who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to Nicodemus. What do we find out about Nicodemus? Is he a smart man or is he kind of thick-headed? He's a smart man. He's a 
teacher of Israel, which means he is an expert in the Old Testament. He's memorized the first five books of the law. He's devoted his entire life to studying Scripture. So Jesus is talking about something that Nicodemus should understand. So let's go to the Old Testament. But here's the problem. The Old Testament doesn't explicitly talk about new birth. Like if you want to Google new birth in the Old Testament, you're not going to find it. But yet the Old Testament kind of alludes to places of birth and water and the Spirit. So if you, if, if you want to write down this reference, Ezekiel 36, verse 25 to 27, prophecy, prophecy, uh, prophecy by Ezekiel. This is what it says, Ezekiel 36, uh, verses 25 to 27. I will also sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So what is Ezekiel saying? Ezekiel is saying, here is the promise of God. What is God going to do? He's going to take his people and he's going to cleanse them by using what? Water. In the Old Testament, what was the symbol of water? What did water do? Water cleansed. I'm going to clean you. I'm going to take all of your impurities, all of your sin, everything you've ever done wrong. I'm going to scrub you clean. I'm going to sprinkle you with water. Is that all he's going to do? No. I'm also going to give you a new heart, a new spirit. I'm going to take the heart of stone that you have and give you a heart of flesh. And now my spirit will dwell within you and cause you, allow you to follow all of my commands. In other words, this new birth is in line with what the prophet, the promise of the prophet Ezekiel said six centuries earlier that God would do a new work. And how would he do this new work? It would be characterized by this moral transformation, this cleansing with water and by giving his people a new heart and putting a new spirit within them. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Do you think Nicodemus knew about this text? Oh, absolutely. And this is what Jesus is talking about. This regeneration, this renewal of the whole nature is not something I'm coming up with. It's in a sense talked about prophet Ezekiel because it's going to be of water and of the Spirit. It is going to be this moral transformation. You will be cleansed. Your heart will be made new and His Spirit will now dwell inside of you. And then Jesus even goes on and, and he unpacks this, this idea. Look, look at verse 6 to verse 8. He says, Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In other words, what, what Jesus is telling Nicodemus as he's kind of unpacking this idea of being born of the water and of the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God, he, he's looking to Nicodemus and saying, hey, bud, understand this. Like produces like. Flesh produces flesh. Spirit produces spirit. 
And the difference between flesh and the spirit is not this contrast between higher and lower aspects of the human nature, but rather a distinction between humanity and God. And what he's telling uh, uh, Nicodemus is what you really must have, uh, Nicodemus, is what Ezekiel said. You need God to cleanse you. You need God to give you a new heart, to fill you with his spirit so that you can be changed and transformed. Only God can do it. And so Nicodemus, from his study of Scripture, should have understood this. He should have understood the promise that God made, a time of when he's going to cleanse them and give them a new heart, put his spirit inside of them. This is why Jesus says, how do you not understand this? What Bible are you reading? It's in there. And then Jesus uses another analogy in verse 8. Look at verse 8 again. He says, the wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it's with everyone born of the Spirit. So so perhaps while, while Jesus and Nicodemus were talking, the wind were blowing, and they saw the sycamore trees like, like its branches just moving, swaying with the wind. And Jesus says, we know that's wind. Even though we don't know where it's coming from, we don't know where it's going. In other words, we might not be able to explain all the mechanics of the wind. But we can't deny the existence of the wind because we see its effects. That's the same thing with the Spirit. Can we explain all the mechanics of the Spirit and how the Spirit is going to give us a new heart and how God is going to clean us? No, we can't explain the mechanics but we can't deny it. Why? Because we will see the effects of it. This regeneration, this renewal that comes from God, you will see a radical transformation. You will see lives being changed. There's this beginning of life from God that shapes our existence into a new direction, a radical transformation. And this is how God operates. This is from God. And yet Nicodemus still didn't understand. He says this in verse 9. How can these things be? Asked Nicodemus. And Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Jesus replied. Like again, it's not that Nicodemus was thick-headed. It's not that he did not understand the metaphors. But here is a man who completely devoted his life to moral uprightness. And yet Jesus is saying that's not enough. Your entire life, your entire existence, and all you've done good is not enough. You need God to make you new. He just couldn't grasp that reality. Because his entire life he's believed, I need to do better. I need to try harder. I need to be more. And if I do these things, I will be accepted by God. And Jesus, in a sense, says, nope. Unless you are radically transformed and renewed by God, you cannot see a thing. You will not be in the kingdom of God. And so the question is, This is kind of a bold, audacious statement of Jesus. Like, what authority authority does Jesus have to speak so boldly? 
Jesus tells us in a sense. Look at verse 11. He says, truly I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what you've seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I've told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Notice how Jesus is speaking. First of all, he starts off with first person plural. He says, we speak what we know, we testify to what we've seen. And then he switches to first person singular. He, he says in verse 12, if I've told you about earthly things, you don't believe. Like, why is he going from plural to singular? I think maybe the best explanation, the most natural explanation, is he's answering Nicodemus on his own terms. How did Nicodemus confront Jesus? Singular or plural? Plural. He said, we. And so Jesus, in a sense, by saying, we know, he's saying, hey, you guys might know something, but let me tell you what. We know a thing or two. And what gives me the authority to speak like that is because I've come from the throne room of God. In a sense, I am speaking on behalf of God because I have revelation from God because I am coming from the throne room of God. And in a sense, what Jesus is saying, the reason why he can speak with such authority because it's wrapped up in his identity and to dismiss dismiss jesus's words is to dismiss who he is his identity and then jesus explains further with this new birth verse 14 and 15 and then we're done you guys are doing so well verse 14 says this just as moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life now again we read this text and we're like, what? What is this guy talking about? But again, who's his audience? Nicodemus. Nicodemus knew exactly what Jesus was talking about because he was an expert in the law. And Jesus was referring to a passage in, in uh, Numbers, verses 20, uh, chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. Here's the passage. Let me quickly read it for you and, and show you the point that Jesus is making. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea, that's the people of God, to bypass the land of Edom. But the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. In other words, the people are wandering in the wilderness. They're complaining about God. They're saying, you are taking us out to kill us. You're not providing for us. And as a result, the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. Then the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And so Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. And when anyone is bitten, looks at it, he will recover. So when Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole, and whenever someone was bitten, he looked at the bronze snake and he recovered. So in other words, after they complained against God, God sent poisonous snakes to bite them. What happens when a poisonous snake bites you? You die. They're saying, oh no, we're in trouble. Lord, please forgive us. The Lord tells Moses, take a snake, make, take a, uh, make a snake image, uh, put it on a pole. And so when a snake bites you, you just simply look to the image and the Lord will heal you. 
In other words, you don't try to suck out the venom. You just look to that image and by faith believing that this is enough for God to heal you. And the Lord healed his people. Why is Jesus bringing this up? Because a millennium and a half later, Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, and as the result people live, so the Son of Man, a.k.a. Jesus, will be lifted up. What is he referring to? He's referring to this pole that's in the shape of a cross. And those that look to him will have life. In other words, this born again, this new birth, this, this regeneration, the renewal of the whole nature. The source of it is the triune God. And if you're taking notes, the means of it, of this regeneration, is the cross of Christ. Because it's on the cross that Jesus provided the means by which we have this new birth. His death so we could have life. His crucifixion begins our eternal life. And this new birth is not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but it is of God. It is birth, this new birth is grounded in the cross of Christ, Jesus' death on our behalf. In other words, we're receiving this benefit not because we're trying harder, not because we're ultra-religious or ultra-conservative, but it's simply by believing in Jesus, looking to the cross, believing what he's done for us is enough. Next week, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the motives of God granting us this new birth, but we're just going to do application here. I want us not to get lost in all the details of this story. Here is this religious man, an expert in the law, moral upright, self-disciplined, knowledge about everything that has to do with God and the Word. And yet Jesus says, that's not enough. You can see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And so how do you be born again? By trying harder? By doing more? No. Jesus says by simply looking to the cross. And by looking to the cross and believing, you will have life. And for many of us, this is a strange foreign concept. Because we're like Nicodemus. How can that be? You want to tell me my reputation and my lifestyle and the way I've lived has nothing to do with this new birth? Clearly it must mean something because my past actions is coming with me. I can't hide from it. And if God sees all, God knows all, he can't just overlook these things and pretend it doesn't exist. And Jesus says, look, you might not be able to explain the mechanics of all of it but you certainly will see the effects of it. It is an act of God, and the means he accomplished it is through the cross of Christ. Look to him. Believe in him. 
And so I think the question for all of us to, to, to seriously consider is this question, am I born again? Has my life been radically transformed by Jesus Christ? Do I look different from the rest of the world or do I just look like everybody else in the way I live? Am I looking to self or am I looking to Christ? Now, now I know some of these questions might feel offensive because you're like, who gives you the right to ask me these questions? Like that's just being judgmental. But, but let me tell you with all love, I'm not being judgmental. By me asking you these questions, I'm not judging you. I'm inviting you in. The same with Jesus. Was Jesus judging Nicodemus? Was he condemning him? No. What was he doing? He was inviting Nicodemus in to stop trying harder, to stop trying to take matters in your own hands and start looking to me. And believe that what I will do for you will be enough. And that's the same invitation that Jesus gives us. Like, don't walk out of here saying, you know what? I need to be, I need to be born again. That means all of these things I need to give up. I need to try harder. I need to do more. No, that's not the invitation. The invitation is not turned to self. The invitation is turned to Christ to look to him and believe in him so that you may have life. This is not something you can do. This is something that only God can do. And he makes this invitation available for you to come and believe. And this is why we celebrate communion. The, 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 this table is this physical representation as it's reminded not of what we have done, but what Christ has done. How, how many times do we feel unworthy to come sit at the table? Does anybody feel super worthy to come sit at the table? You're like, I'm right. I've nailed it this week. I'm ready to sit at the table. No. Most of us feel unworthy. We're like, oh, man. I can't believe we're doing communion again. I don't like it every Sunday because that means I just don't feel right. And this is the beauty of it. This is why we do it every Sunday. So that you're reminded, yes, I'm unworthy, but I don't get to sit at the table because of my performance or because of my worth. I get to sit at the table because of what Christ has performed on my behalf, his worth he has given me. And I'm reminded that as I eat the body, as I drink the blood, I'm reminded what he has done for me as I look to him, believing that what he's done for me is enough. This is the invitation. Stop looking to self. Turn to him. Believe in him, whether it's your first time or whether you continue to believe in him. Continue to believe in him. And so let, let me pray for us We'll distribute the elements, and as we distribute these elements, this is what I want you to meditate on. Have I been radically transformed? Look at the evidence. If you don't see the evidence, don't walk out of here and saying, okay, I just need to try harder. Look to Christ. Say, Lord, I believe that what you've done is enough. I don't understand how this works but I need you to transform me. I need you to make me new. It's not anything I can do, but it's what you have done. 
meditate on those things. And if you are a believer and you feel unworthy because you feel beaten up by sin, again, think about what Christ has done for you. Turn from yourself, turn to him. And thank him as you receive it with gladness. Let let me pray for us and then we'll distribute these elements. Lord, thank you that you came to make us new. You have acted to to cleanse our, our, our hearts, to give us a new heart, to put our spirit, your spirit inside of us. You are the source of this regeneration. And it's by the means of your cross that you've accomplished this. And so, Lord, you know us. You know what we're thinking right now. You know for those that are maybe like Nicodemus that maybe not understand it because they're too busy to looking to self. Can you help them to look to you? Can you open up their eyes? And for some of us that are distracted because we feel like we think we're just not good enough, can you help us to look to you as we look to the cross, believing that what you've done is enough and that what you've done is finished as we receive it with gladness and with gratitude and in faith, and we say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. We, we live in a culture that is so performance-driven, a culture that's all about self-help and looking to self. And this culture has really infiltrated the church. It's influenced how we look at God, how we look at scripture of self-help. And so many times we come into church to gather and we feel like we're not good enough. We feel unworthy. We feel like we've had bad weeks. And then so many times we walk out of here and we're like, man, I just need to try harder. This guy just beat me over the head. I need to do more. I need to make better decisions. And in a sense, we feel like I need to pursue righteousness. I need to pursue holiness. I need to do all of these things. And in a sense, Scripture does tell us, pursue righteousness, pursue holiness, pursue the things of God. However, we don't pursue righteousness or holiness or righteousness so that we can obtain those things. We pursue holiness, righteousness, and the things of God because we have those things. You've been declared righteous. You've been declared holy. You've been made worthy. Not because of anything you have done, but because of the cross of Christ. And because of the cross of Christ, you can pursue those things but not before. And so many times we need to be realigned because we get things backwards. And what this table helps us, it helps us to be realigned. It reminds us of why we can pursue these things because what we have. As we look at this bread that represents his body that was broken for us, We eat it and receive it in remembrance of what he's done on our behalf. His body broken for us. Take it and eat it.
this cup that represents his blood that paid for all of our sins, that washed us as white as snow, the new covenant we have in him. We drink it and receive it in remembrance of him. Take it and drink it. And then we thank God for what he's accomplished for us on the cross. That he has declared us righteous. He's declared us holy. He has set us apart. We are now the people of God. And we can pursue holiness and righteousness because we are the people of God. Remember in Ezekiel, I will place my spirit inside of you. And because my spirit inside of you, now you can obey. Now you can follow my laws and my commands. And this is what the table helps to remind us. Because of what he's done, now we can do these things. But we need to realign ourselves. We first look to him. As we turn from self, look to him first. And then follow him. Because his spirit is inside of us. Let let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible mercy and grace. Thank you that you have acted. You have purified us. You have cleansed us. You have taken our heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. You have given us a new spirit. You have placed your spirit inside of us. Thank you for this new birth that you've granted us because of what your son has done on the cross for us. Help us to turn from ourselves. Help us to look to you, to trust in you, to believe that what you have done for us is enough. We thank you for everything, Lord Jesus. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and worship our King.